Sometimes we preach joyfully and we shout. Can't wait to get to heaven. Sometimes we preach and we wish we didn't have to hear it, but we do. Sometimes we have what we want to hear. Sometimes we have what we want need to hear. It's a wonderful thing when it's what we want to hear and what we want to, and need also what we need to hear when it comes together like that. Doesn't happen all that often, but this morning I'm going to preach to you something that you need to hear. When it's over, you may say, well, Pastor, I'm glad you did that. I wanted to hear that. I don't think many of you will, but maybe some will. Here's my job this morning. This is my job description. The Lord gave it through the prophet Ezekiel in the 33rd chapter, where he said to Ezekiel, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. That's verses 6 and 7. I didn't read all of it. But I read that about being the watchman who has been given the responsibility to pronounce the warning of the approaching enemy. And in fact, he went on to say that if the watchman receives the message and doesn't pass it on to the people, when there's defeat and destruction as a result of that, the blood of the defeated will be on the hands of the watchman, more so than on those who brought about the defeat. I don't want that to happen at any time in my life. I want the responsibility that I'm re required to bear, to be born under the hand of the Lord and with the Lord's anointing, recognizing that the Lord's truth has value no matter what effect it brings to our lives. Ultimately, eventually, perhaps not always immediately, but in finality, the truth of God will set us free. You shall know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth shall set you free. There is freedom in the truth. There's victory in the truth. And I want to share with you some things today that I know are true because I'm going to give you God's Word. There'll be many passages in His Word I'll refer to today. I suggest you write them down. Don't try to read them with me and follow with them right now, but write down the passages. You can go back and read them later. In fact, that'll be a good thing to do. Last Sunday, I preached a message that I called Finding Your Place. I looked at the website this morning, and I see only five people have listened to that message since I preached it last Sunday. That did not encourage me. I encourage you to go listen to that message, because if you didn't hear it last Sunday, even if you did, go to the website and listen to that message, Finding Your Place, because that is a compliment that fits in with what I'm preaching to you this morning as I tell you the truth today about losing your place. There's a lot of discussion that there has been for generations about whether once a person is saved they can ever be lost again. I'm not preaching to you this morning about having been saved and then being lost. I believe that is possible. I'll clarify that. And I think the scripture supports that. But it's enough to say that when someone has lived at a level of victory, and then in the movement and changes of their lives, 
they move away from that victory and they move into a place that if it isn't characterized as defeat, it certainly is less than victory. And that is never God's will. God wants us to move forward, onward, and upward toward the finish line of this race he has called us into that we call life. A lot of times the scripture compares the life of the Christian with a race or a walk or other metaphors that describe to us how we're moving ahead and working towards a goal that we all want to reach in life. The finish line of life is crossing over into the eternal presence of the Lord and living with Him, knowing that we have done our best, knowing that the waiting, that what we've been waiting for, that message from Him of well done, thou good and faithful servant, will be ours to receive. That's the victory we want to achieve as we live for God in our lives. But it does not come automatically. I will say to you this morning, if you're not closer to God than you were last month or than you were last week, for that matter, than you were yesterday, then you're going in the wrong direction. The Bible tells us if we draw near to him, he will complement that by drawing near to us. But the first initiative toward that, after the initiative God has already taken by sending his son to die for our sins and making us children of God, the initiative beyond that is for us to take. The promise of God is there. I'll draw near to you if you will seek to draw near to me. And that's what we have to practice in our lives if we want to live in constant victory, even if we been knocked down in what seems to be a defeat, it's temporary. If we keep our faith in God and march on with Him and move forward with Him and seek again and again and again to draw closer and closer to Him. That's the goal of the Christian life, to walk in victory and every day be closer and closer to Him than we were the time before. So I want you to read with me or follow with me as I read 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This is the text and the basis of my message to you this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask for your anointing, for clarity of truth. I ask you for specificity, that we will hear point by point what we need to hear. Not, not just because of a message and a sermon, but because of something that we need that we perhaps don't even know that we need, I pray that the specific work of the Holy Spirit will touch our hearts and enliven that truth to us and help us not to say, oh, somebody needs that, but to say, Lord, do I need that? And help me to receive what I need. Let us pray that as we receive this message today. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is verse 24, and I'm reading it in the Amplified Version. Here it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run their very best to win, but only one receives the prize? Run your race in such a way that you may seize the prize and make it yours. He's comparing this now to an earthly race. 
And in that race, there is only one winner. The race that we're talking about, everyone is a winner in this race who crosses the finish line. Those who don't give up, who don't grow weary, who don't turn aside and get distracted and lead in a different direction, but stay on course, who finally cross the finish line, are the victors and the winners in this race, and they're given the prize when that finish line is crossed. Now, every athlete, I'm reading again, verse 25, now every athlete who goes into training and completes and competes in the games is disciplined and exercises self-control in all things. They do it to win a crown that withers, but we do it to receive an imperishable crown that cannot wither. Therefore, do not run without a definite goal. I do not flail around like one beating the air, just shadow boxing, but I strictly discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached the gospel to others, I myself will not somehow be disqualified as unfit for service. That was the Apostle Paul. I want to give you that last verse in a combination of two translations, if you will. Putting together how that last verse is phrased in the New Living Translation and also how it is phrased in the King James Version, this is the rendering that I have of verse 27. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself should be a castaway. That was Paul's great concern. Now, if Paul, after preaching to others, could fail, falter and fail, anybody can. So I'm going to tell you today that you can fail, but you don't have to. It's possible for anybody to fail. It's also possible that nobody fail. By keeping our trust in him, relying on his word, believing what his word says, we will achieve the victory. We'll finish the race. We'll cross the finish line. But if we don't do that, we'll falter, we'll fail, and we will not complete the run. I preached quite some time ago, not too long ago, several weeks ago, I preached a message where Paul said, we are not to be weary in well-doing. Don't give up. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not faint. If we do not give up, we will reap the harvest of the victorious life God has planned for us. And so this verse is a challenge to us. Paul said, I don't want to do anything that will compromise my life, my testimony, my witness, my ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to preach to others the life of victory and then myself become a castaway. The probability of that for Paul, of course, was unlikely. But it was possible. And the challenge to us is to know that it is possible to lose our way, to get misguided, misdirected by something that we've been taught and believed that's an error, by something we've read in the Bible that somebody told us this was the meaning and they distorted it and didn't give it to us correctly. 
by reading something in the Bible that's very clear and very forthright and thinking that's for somebody else but not for me. By reading something in the Bible that's very clear and very forthright and thinking, oh, that's for somebody else but not for me. By reading something in the Bible that's very clear and very forthright. I'm going to keep on until somebody says amen. Okay. Because it's for you. It's all for you and it's all for me. And if Paul could become a castaway, so can anyone if we fail God. Jesus said, and sometimes Jesus had a, I will say most often Jesus had a way of putting something in a, in a colloquial way. Just so ordinary and so mundane. Oftentimes, if you aren't very careful, you miss the real impact of it. Jesus said, no man, how many of you know what a plow is? You know what a plow is? Have you ever, have you ever followed behind a plow? Have you ever got, no, you haven't. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you get behind that plow with the old mule pulling at you, and you're guiding that, trying to keep a straight line. Row a straight furrow, they used to say, with that plow. And Jesus said, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, the challenge of that is, I've never, I've known a lot of people who walk behind plows and guided plows. I've known a lot of them in my lifetime. Not recently, but a long time ago, I knew a lot of them. I did it a few times myself. I will tell you, I was never any good at it. I can never plow a straight line. That's why they took me off the plow and put me in the field picking the weeds and those kinds of things. I never lasted long at plowing. I wasn't any good at it. But, you know, it's not an easy job. You've got to hold that thing straight. You're wrestling. You're wrestling with it all the time. But Jesus said, when you're tempted to give up after you put your hand to the plow and look back and say, wait a minute, the water's cool back there. I left the water. It's heat out here in the, hot out here in the field. I need to run back and get a drink of water. Let the plow just stand and without me for a while. I'll come back to it. No man who ever put his hand to the plow and turns around and looks back and gives up is fit for the kingdom of God. It's an illustration that says you cannot quit. You've got to continue on. You've got to go forward. You've got to move ahead. You've got to stay in the straight line. Or if you turn around and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. It seems like such a simple thing when he starts saying, and then he hits it with a mighty powerful impact. Think about not being fit for the kingdom of God. Those people who turn around and look back long for the old days and the old ways and wish that they never got saved so they wouldn't have to live righteously are not fit for the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. And what a challenge that is. Nothing, nothing should ever cause us to quit or even to want to quit in our striving for our best in service to God. If you've ever made a promise to God, think about this now. If you've ever made a promise to God, very few of us in this place, very few of us have never made a promise to God. Most of us, at one time or another, have promised God something. Many of us have made many promises to God. 
But let me tell you, if you have ever made a promise to God, it is a solemn thing to tell God you will do something. You'll be faithful at the plow, or you will not give up. You will push forward in serving him. You've made a promise to him, and you have broken that promise. You have failed God in the keeping of that promise. That's a solemn thing for you to contemplate. Now, I am not here to tell you that God won't forgive you for something like that. There isn't anything that isn't touched by the cover of God's forgiveness. But I am here to tell you that people who make promises to God and break them and make them again and break them and make them again and break them will never have any stability in their life No real true victory in their life for God. Oh, God, if you will just do this one thing for me, this is what I'll do for you. And then when God does that thing, we forget to praise him for it. And we also forget that we attached a promise to it when we prayed for God to do it. If you said it, just like if you make a promise to me, I expect you to keep it if you make a promise. But it's almost irrelevant if you break your promise to me. But I will tell you this. If you make a promise to God, he expects you to keep it too. And if you break it, it is not an irrelevant issue in your life. I know that I'm preaching this morning to a lot of people who are not here. I can't help that. I wish everybody who's a part of this church were here this morning. And a lot of others as well. But perhaps this message, by your sharing it somewhere in some way, in conversation, by social media, or maybe even by people hearing it on the Internet, there will be an impact on somebody's life who needs to hear this. And it may very well be that what I'm saying right now is like an arrow going to your mind and into your heart because you know that's something that you're guilty of. And, and, and my friends, if it is, it doesn't mean that it's beyond repair. You can come back to God and ask God to forgive you for not doing what you said you would do, for not keeping the promise that you made to him. God will forgive. But when you feel guilty about it and hide from it, it doesn't keep you from the consequences of it. The only way you can ever recover from sin, and breaking your word to God is a sin, the only way you can ever recover from sin is by repenting And receiving the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people know that they've made mistakes. They've been unforgiving. They've been harsh. They've been hateful and mean and argumentative. Not anybody here, of course. But you get the point that I'm making. And, 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 and And then when that happens, they say, oh, oh. I really wish I hadn't done it. And, and some people just, that's when they get in a flurry of good works. Well, they will come to you and they'll help you with anything you need help with. They'll press your clothes. They'll iron your socks. They'll put your uh, clothing, I started to say out on the clothesline, but then nobody would know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so my microphone is just keeps pulling itself loose. We've got a new part for it that I'm going to start wearing next Sunday. I promise you it was just distracting me. Terribly. Okay, I'm, I think I'm all right again. So, so they'll, they'll start off in this, in this great effort of good worship. But listen, friend, if you are holding grudges and 
harboring hate towards somebody, refusing to speak to somebody. It doesn't matter how many how many little crosses you make, you fix them all up real, and real pretty and put a little jewel on and pass them out to good pe- people and say, oh, it doesn't matter how much you do that. It doesn't matter how much you go and respond to somebody when they need somebody to mow their lawn or, or to build back the step that fell off the front porch. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do. Because good deeds will never cover sin. There's nothing wrong with doing good. The Bible teaches us a good thing to do is to help others to do good deeds. But that will never make up for your sin. So if you sin, there's only one way to cover that. If you sin against somebody, go to them and ask for forgiveness. And ask Jesus for forgiveness and to have your sin covered by his blood. Because if you think that doing something good is going to cover any sin that you've committed, however great it may be, however small it may be, that's a fallacy that the devil has led you into to cause you to believe the things that weaken you and pull you away from God are legitimate. And you know, we're, we're so often inclined to misinterpret the way God moves in our lives. And and it's easy to do. You know, we think when things are going well, boy, I must be doing everything right. I must be doing just what the Lord wants me to do. Look how he's blessed me. And then you think that that thing you really know is wrong. But you compromise in your mind and say, it must be all right, or God wouldn't have given me this raise. God wouldn't have helped me sell that piece of property or buy that piece of property. God wouldn't have helped me get over this trip I wanted to make and given me the money to do it. God wouldn't have blessed me. God wouldn't have helped me. If, if, I, if, I, were not, if, if I were responsible or guilty, of, of the, uh, I don't have to worry about them because look at the way God's blessed me. I must be all right. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that the people who prosper are necessarily the people who are righteous. It doesn't teach that the people who get abundance poured out on them, that the world looks at as blessing and favor, is what keeps them righteous and holy. That's certainly obviously not true. And especially it isn't true for the Christians. For Christians, we need to recognize that really... The blessings of God are intended to draw us closer to him, not to cause us to be indifferent and lackadaisical about God and the things of God. I'm saying some important things. I hope you're getting them. And I'm going to justify that by the scripture, what I just told you. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. This is what Romans says. Not that you're just to take the blessings of God as a sign that he's pleased with what you're doing. It doesn't mean, it's not a sign that he's not pleased. I'm just saying that the blessings of God are not necessarily to let you say, oh, God must be, uh, everything must be all right. Doesn't matter that what I did to that person, what I caused, that uproar that I caused. Doesn't matter, it's all right. We're looking at the way God's blessing me. No, this is what the Word of God says. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It isn't always the struggle or the battle or the attack that's to cause you to turn to God. The blessings of God, the favor of God, the majesty of God in your life, the overpowering goodness of abundance of things in your life. 
is to cause you to turn to God. This is the way the New Living Translation puts that. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you away from your sin? That's God's intention. So when you get wonderfully blessed, gloriously blessed, you need to get before God and say, Oh God, what is it that I need to forgive or be forgiven for? What is it that I need to correct or change? Because you've shown me that you really want me to be closer to you by the way you've blessed me. Do we look at it that way very often? Not very often. His great blessings, I'll say it again, his great blessings are really intended to bring us to him and to repentance. Don't take the blessings of God as acceptance of and approval of everything in your life because that is not the way it's intended from God. That's what his word says. Second Peter chapter 2. Starting at verse 20, I'm reading again from the Bible. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we've escaped that and come through that and come past that, after that, they are again entangled in them and overcome. We turn back to those things he delivered us from. We're attacking them and overcome. The last state has become worse for those that that happens to than the first state before they ever got delivered. Verse 21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It would be better if you hadn't known it than to know it and turn back. What the true proverb says has happened to them. This is the proverb that Peter quotes. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It amazes me, and I, and I grant you I have never gotten over it. I don't know that I ever will. I, I think I understand it from a natural perspective, I don't understand it from a spiritual perspective. Most things are the opposite of that in my life. Most things I understand from a spiritual perspective, even those I don't understand from a natural perspective. In the event of what I'm going to tell you now, I think I understand it in the natural from a spiritual perspective. I just do not understand it. I don't know why people will come to God. And I can name to you people right now, name to you and describe people right now that I think of as I look at this altar. who come here, knelt at this altar, or stood here at this altar, and made a decision for Jesus Christ. And I know in that moment they made a decision. I speak to them, I talk to them, I look at them, I see their expression. I know a change has happened. God has come into their lives and made a difference right then, instantaneously, in that moment. They decided to receive Jesus. And yet, when a little bit of time passes, and then you don't see them for a while, you talk to them again, and you realize that somewhere, sometime after that decision was made, they made another decision. They may not have said, oh, I wish I'd never gone to that altar, and I wish I'd never said, Lord, forgive me my sins. 
I can't do it, but I'm going to go ahead and live the way I did. They may not say that. But by their actions and by their lives, they made a decision. And that decision is not to walk with Jesus Christ, even though he saved them and brought them to an experience of forgiveness through the power of his cross. But it happens. People decide after they've made the decision, they change their mind. That's the part. Maybe maybe I understand in the natural more than I do in the spiritual, but I don't know. I find it difficult to comprehend how somebody can have a marvelous, glorious experience with God and then turn away from that and not live in it. But I know it does happen. And I say that not because I believe anybody here has done that. Certainly you by your presence here indicates that you haven't done that. But I'm saying to you, don't ever let that happen. You may be tempted at some point in time, sometime in your life, to hear a word from the enemy. And it will be from the enemy. No matter how it's couched, no matter what mouth it comes from, no matter what book you read it in, if it's causing you to decide to think again about your decision that you made for Jesus Christ and it's causing you to think that you ought to turn back, it is a wrong decision. It is a deception. It is a distortion of any truth that the devil may try to use to bring that to you and cause you to take that action. Don't ever do that. Peter said it's a horrible thing and worse than before ever coming to Christ, if you should do that. I'm going to come very quickly to an end right now and bring this to this conclusion. Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. I'm going to read it for you very quickly. This is a message to people known as Christians. The Galatian church, churches of the Galatia area. And this is written to them. So it's written... As a warning, it's written as a it's written as a direction for life. Galatians chapter five, starting at verse eighteen. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, that's inherent in all of us. The results are very clear. Here are the results that he names. He's naming them. I'm just reading them right out of the Bible. Sexual immorality, impurity lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. I just read it right out of the scriptures, that's all. Let me tell you again, this is what Paul is continuing to say. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. You came to the altar. You said, yes, Jesus. You lived for him for a while. And then you got caught up in the entanglements of these sins. I'm going to jump back to one of those things where it says sorcery. We don't think much about sorcery these days. It really is witchcraft. But the Bible says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's what Samuel said to King Saul of the Old Testament. In Saul's rebellion, he said, what you're doing is the same as witchcraft, rebellion. Listen, listen, young people. Listen, sons and daughters, 
Listen, husbands and wives. Rebellion is as witchcraft. You wouldn't think about practicing witchcraft. Of course you wouldn't. Except that in your rebellion, that's what you're doing. That's losing your place. You can find a place in the service of God, the kingdom of God, the family of God, yes. And find a strong place. But you can always, always lose that place. And God help you not to do that, not to ever do that. I've got to finish my message this morning. I'm not through with it, but I've got to finish it. I guess I've just been preaching about, you know, in the past years ago, we used to talk about the things that I'm preaching about right now, and we called it holiness. Some of you may remember those days. We talked about people being holy. We talked about people being sanctified. We talked about people giving up sin. Of course, in those days, the things that we thought were sin, I'm not sure all of the things we thought were sin were, but it's better to give up too much than not enough. So I think I've been talking about holiness. And it's okay to talk about holiness. It's even okay to call it that. Put the name on it. That's what it is. We are to live holy lives. In fact, the Bible says that we, if we don't practice holiness, let me put it to you exactly what it says. Hebrews 10, 14. We're to strive for peace with everyone. And to strive for the holiness. It puts that B in there. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without the holiness generated by the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ, no one will see the Lord. That's not a rule that I make. I didn't even vote for it because I wasn't asked for a vote. (laughs) I'm just preaching it because that's there in the Bible and that's what's true. And if, if, if you think that holiness is too strong a standard based on the elements of holiness that I just read out of God's Word, then you're just mistaken. This is just one of those occasions when you're wrong and I'm right. And I'm only right because I'm telling you what the Bible says, not because I said it, but because this is what the Bible says. Praise God. And so and so here we are. Here we are. We're at a place. This is what I decided a long time ago. And I have not fulfilled it perfectly. I want us to sing this little song and get ready for it right now. I, 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 uh, I, I made this decision, and and when I made this decision, I've told you of my experience of salvation. I I I, I didn't know anything. I, I, all I knew when they when the holiness people that I was around at that time started telling me what was wrong, I believed it, and I just went on and practiced what they told me. So, so uh, it's like it's it's like one of my friends of those years passed. He said, "I was in this holiness movement. I got out just before they got my necktie." They thought everything that was adornment was wrong, you know. And they were wearing this ring. If they'd seen me wearing this ring in those days, it would have been like consignment to hell. And you think, well, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's true. It is. But that's what was being preached to talk those, uh, in those days. 
But they didn't neglect to talk and preach about the things that I just read to you from the scripture either. They said that too. They just went a little too far with a lot of things. But they did hold fast to those things that I read to you in the scripture this morning that it says are wrong, are sin. And those things will corrupt your life and destroy you. And that's the holiness. That's the purity that we ought to seek as we seek God to be brought into that level of holiness because that level of holiness and purity with God is a level of power with God as well. I've told you in the past, and it's still true, I go before the Lord and I start seeking God for more power. God starts talking about to me about more purity. I say, God, I want more of you. And his answer is, yeah, and I want more of you. That's just the way it works. If we want to live for God, we've got to live by the standards of God's word. If we want to be victorious and live holy, and I know some of you have not done that, and maybe some of you are not doing it now. But I want to tell you there's a remedy for that. There's a turnaround. There's a change that makes a difference. And that remedy is the blood of Jesus Christ the Lord. That remedy is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in the cross of Christ, there's power, there's power over sin, there's victory over sin, and there's victory in every element of our lives that we will surrender to Him. Surrendering to Him is the victory He wants us to have. And so I heard this little song a long time ago. I've sung it a thousand times. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. As we start to sing this song today, if this is your testimony, start to stand up as we begin to sing. I have decided to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. 